Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. Uh, John chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 this morning as we continue along in our study of the book. When I was a kid, the TV show Cops was a big hit. It was really the first ever reality TV show. If you've never seen it, a camera crew would follow police officers, usually in a violent U.S. neighborhood, and then they would film them on patrol as they responded to calls and sometimes made arrests. The best episodes by far were when they would put out uh, arrest warrants because these often involved some amount of resistance on the person they were bringing the warrant to, uh, sometimes even a chase scene. And it was exhilarating, you know, as a 10-year-old boy to watch the good guys chase down and take down the bad guys and then take them into custody, handcuffed into their cars. I loved it. And yet, I also remember feeling a little bit sorry for the people who had been arrested because they always looked so sad and helpless as they lost all authority over their lives. You know, one moment they were in complete control and they could do what they wanted to do and go where they wanted to be. And then just like that, the next moment, they lost all control and had to go away to jail against their will. It's a a pitiful, pitiful position to be in, which is what makes what we're now going to see in this morning's text so striking. We're going to see the only man who ever maintained absolute authority during his arrest. At the beginning of John 17, Jesus said his hour had come, which throughout the Gospel of John refers to the final events in Jesus' earthly life and ministry. That finally was beginning to unfold in chapter 18. And it starts with his betrayal and arrest in these first 11 verses. Now, there were, of course, no video cameras to film this incident, but the Apostle John, who was a present eyewitness, recorded it in this morning's text. And he did so in a way that emphasizes the absolute authority of Jesus. Unlike poor criminals who show themselves to be powerless and pathetic when they are arrested, we are now going to see Jesus, who committed no crime, nevertheless show himself to be all-powerful and in absolute control when he experienced the same thing. Which should come as no surprise because just a a few moments before his arrest in John 17 verse 2, Jesus affirmed in his prayer that God the Father had given him authority over all flesh. But even more significant, earlier Jesus affirmed his authority specifically over his final hours. That he would be in complete control of his betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. That he would have power over his passion, that he would be sovereign over his sufferings. In John 10, 18, he said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Well, now with the hour of these events finally come, we see this prophecy start to play out as Jesus demonstrates his divine authority in his betrayal and arrest. 
And what the Apostle John shows us, first of all, is that Jesus had authority over the place of his betrayal and arrest. So chapter 18, verses 1 to 2, we read this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So right after finishing his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, Jesus and his disciples left the upper room in Jerusalem where they had been celebrating the Passover and where, ever since chapter 13, Jesus had been given private instruction to them. The Apostle John tells us that they first, as they left, crossed the brook Kidron or Kidron Valley, which was a a stream bed along the eastern side of Jerusalem that was usually dry most of the year, but would intermittently swell up with rains, especially in the winter when the rains were heavy. Now, this is a significant detail because King David had crossed the brook Kidron when he was rejected by the Jewish nation and was betrayed by his friend in 2 Samuel 15. Another reminder that Jesus is the promised messianic savior king in the line of David. But it's also significant because there was a drain that ran down from the temple altar to the brook Kidron, carrying the blood from all of the daily sacrifices uh, away from the city. Well, during the Passover feast, when the events of this chapter were taking place, over 200,000 lambs were slain. Which means that when Jesus crossed over the Kidron, almost for certain, it would have been running red with blood from the sacrifices providentially pointing to the final sacrifice of whom John called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus himself. But there's even more significance to the place Jesus and his disciples entered. Notice it says that they entered a garden, which the other gospel writers specifically name as the Garden of Gethsemane. This was just east of the Kidron Valley on the foot of the Mount of Olives. Now, though we can't be certain John intended to make this, what's sometimes called an intertextual connection, it seems likely that he wanted the reader to think back to the most famous garden in the Bible, the Garden of Eden, where sin and death first came into the world and corrupted the world in Genesis 3. Now, in this garden, a garden millennia later, Jesus was about to be betrayed and arrested in order to save the world from sin and death by dying as the final sacrifice for sin, which will then make it possible for all who believe in Jesus and belong to Jesus to then spend eternity in another garden, The garden city, when he returns, as we see later in Revelation 22, 1 to 5, the new Jerusalem that will come upon the new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Isn't the Bible amazing? How it all fits together in Jesus, who has the authority to put it all back together. This mess that began in a garden so long ago with the first sin, that then was begun to be transformed and redeemed in another garden, where Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and brought to his saving death, which will then make it possible for all who believe in him to enter that final garden, that garden city in the new heavens and new earth. Amazing. But there's more. We finally see that Jesus wasn't here trying to avoid his betrayal and arrest by, you know, hiding in some secret location. No, he was arranging it all to happen exactly where he wanted, where he planned. He chose to go and wait and pray, it says here, in the very place that his betrayer Judas would first look. The garden where they had often met to camp and to pray during the Jewish feast when Jerusalem was crowded with up to a million people and it was common, therefore, for pilgrims to camp out on the outskirts of the town. Which just goes to show us again that Jesus was not helplessly cowering that night, you know, wringing his hands, waiting to be arrested. No, rather, he was in complete control, right where he wanted to be in perfect harmony with God's will and God's work for him. Which now is so comforting to us who follow Jesus wherever he leads. This reminds us that he likewise has absolute authority over the place where he puts us. That we are right where he wants us to be in perfect harmony with God's will and with God's work for us. Whether it's this place or wherever he leads us. If we're following his lead, we can know that we are where he wants us to be by his authority. And what a difference that makes. I remember having a few moments of mild panic after you called us to minister here and we received the call to come three years ago. We were very content in our ministry in northern BC. And after seven years of pastoring there, honestly, we were ready to and happy to, to pastor another seven years or even our whole lives if need be. Fraser Lake had become home to us. The church was our family. We, we loved our neighbors. And so leaving all that to come back to Saskatchewan was not easy. But in moments when we had some doubts about our decision, where we were a little fearful about what the future was going to bring, what gave us peace about making this big change of location was knowing with certainty it was Jesus who opened the door for us. And it was him who led us through it. And so if this was the place that he wanted me to pastor, then we had nothing to fear. He had absolute authority over where we are and where we are going to serve. And that, that's a great comfort. And I think of the Apostle Paul, whom the Lord had also providentially and powerfully led throughout his three missionary journeys as recorded in Acts. Most famously, how he stopped him in Acts 16 from going to Asia with the gospel in order to rather go to Macedonia, where he would then uh, preach the word and plant churches in famous cities like Philippi and Corinth. 
Or even before that, I think of the early church, how it was thriving in Jerusalem until the Lord dispersed most of the Christians there through persecution so that they might then fulfill the mission he had given in chapter 1, verse 8, that they would go beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He had absolute authority then as well where his followers would be and would minister And it's all the same thing we see right here in these first two verses of our text, that Jesus had authority over the place of his betrayal and arrest. But that's not all. We go on to see that Jesus also had authority over the people who were involved in his betrayal and arrest. So verse 3, we read, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. What a strange scene that must have been for any of the bystanders. Uh, First, there's Judas who betrayed him. Now, this is how John refers to Judas twice in our text, emphasizing what would come to define this duplicitous disciple from that day on. I mean, even today, right, the name Judas is associated with betrayal. That's why nobody, at least in the Western world, who knows about Judas would would call their son that. Though he had been a, a follower and friend of Jesus for three years, for the right price, he stabbed his rabbi and redeemer in the back, showing his true colors in the end. Many centuries ago in Italy, an artist wanted to paint a picture of Mary and the Christ child, so he found a beautiful young peasant woman with this uh, innocent-looking child to pose for it. Well, years later, while working on another New Testament painting that included Judas, he found the most deplorable man in the city's prison to pose for it, a man who was condemned to death. And for many days, he, he went to the prison and back to sketch the man's portrait. Uh, and then he, he took it back and finished all the final touches in his studio, where a few days later, he saw something about the face that was strangely familiar and puzzled him from days until it finally dawned on him. That this was actually the very man he had earlier painted as a child, to be the Christ child, to be the face of innocent Jesus. I'm sure that the other disciples felt the same sense of shock when they saw Judas's face on that fateful night. The face of a trusted friend suddenly turned and twisted into the face of a sinister traitor. But this was no surprise to Jesus. He predicted it earlier in chapter 6, 13. And though surely heartbroken, he now accepted it with absolute authority. The fact that John omits the actual betrayal with a kiss, something the other Gospels include, is again meant to emphasize the fact that Jesus had complete control of his betrayal. You know, he didn't helplessly endure Judas's betrayal, but he sovereignly allowed it to happen to him. Yet it wasn't Judas who betrayed him that was the only one in the scene that night. 
According to John, there was also a band of soldiers, or a detachment, as the NIV translates it, which consisted of a thousand Roman soldiers, though normally was only around 600 in practice, who would have been stationed in the fortress of Atonia, northwest of the temple. Usually, Roman troops were stationed in Caesarea, but during Jewish festivals, when multitudes of Jewish pilgrims were in the city and messianic hopes were very high, uh, this detachment would have been stationed there to keep an eye out for any signs of insurrection. Likely, Judas and the officers sent from the chief priests and Pharisees had told these Roman soldiers that Jesus was posing as a messianic king. He was getting a growing following, and so they needed to arrest him. This intimidating mob of armed men then went to find Jesus, and he paints this picture of this great group of men, this mob with torches and, and weapons. And as I was reading that this week, I, I couldn't help but think of those awful uh, film clips from southern states during the 1950s and 60s where hooded men in white robes and torches and weapons would descend maliciously upon a, a black neighborhood. You know, not something we would ever wish upon anyone. And yet, when facing a very similar situation, Jesus showed no signs of fear or intimidation. Instead, what we go on to see in verse 4 and 5 is that he met this mob head on. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Jesus knew exactly what this mob meant. The beginning of the end of his earthly life and the start of his terrible suffering. Yet, he confidently came forward when his enemies arrived, taking the initiative and thereby demonstrating again that he was in complete control. The picture John paints is not a feeble, frightened man in terror, but rather the son of God and, and son of man taking charge with what he did and what he said. Now, there's something he said here that he says again in verse 6 and 8 and that he said before on seven specific occasions. He said, I am he. Which on the one hand is just a normal response to the mob statement that they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that's, that's me, all right. But in John's gospel, when Jesus used the words, I am, he always meant more. Namely, that he was divine, that he was and is the Lord God, Yahweh, who revealed himself this very way to Moses in Exodus 3, 14. Something that the Jewish religious leaders certainly caught on to and was the reason they wanted him dead for blasphemy, for, for claiming to be God. We see this on a number of occasions. One is chapter 8, verse 58 to 59. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In his classic apologetics work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis observed, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Well, the religious leaders had heard his claim and made their choice. He's a devil. He's a liar. He's a lunatic. And now they were responding accordingly, seeking to arrest him so they could put him to death. But the officers they had sent, they'd never heard Jesus say such things, like I am, nor the band of soldiers who accompanied them. And the effect of these words was stunning. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Remember, these were battle-hardened Roman soldiers and elite temple guards. They would not be easily frightened, let alone fall to the ground because of some mere rabbi. Unless his words were spoken with such majesty and magnitude that they'd never heard before. And this is surely what happened here. After all, something very similar had happened before in chapter 7, verse 45 to 46, when a number uh, these temple guards had been sent to earlier arrest him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. So twice now, they had gone to arrest Jesus only for themselves to be arrested by his divine authority. Exhibiting what King David said in Psalm 27, 2 would happen to his enemies. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. But, you know, it's also how Jesus goes on to then keep his disciples from physical and spiritual harm that demonstrates his absolute authority, his complete control over it all. Notice what goes on, uh, we go on to read in verse 7 and 8. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. So the reason Jesus asked twice, whom do you seek, was most likely to remind the mob that their beef was with him, Jesus of Nazareth, not his disciples. This was to assure their release, which unlike the other gospel accounts, again, highlights his deliverance of them rather than their desertion of him. Again, emphasizing his divine authority. None were lost. Just as he said earlier in his prayer in chapter 17, 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, it should also be noted that Jesus uses the same formula here for the words of Jesus, this was to fulfill the word, that he used previously for fulfillments of the word of God, the Old Testament scriptures, which means his words are being put on the same level as God's. And no wonder, as we've just seen, Jesus clearly is God, the son of God, because he had authority over the people involved in his arrest. Which also is a, or should be a a great comfort for Christians today when we encounter people who are hostile towards us because of our identification with Jesus. 
for speaking his word. If he was in complete control when accosted and arrested by an armed mob, we can be certain he will be in control when we face tribulation for him. After all, isn't this what Jesus promised after predicting persecution? At the end of chapter 16, verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have authority. You know, I'm thankful that in my Christian life, I have rarely experienced hate and hostility. But there have been a few circumstances where someone turned up the heat because I was speaking Christ's word. And it was always clear in those moments who was in control. Jesus. For example, the the way that he would, in some circumstances I can think of, give me just the right words in order to diffuse the situation or the way he would maybe bring someone else in at just the right time who could who could calm things down or the way he somehow would bring about supernatural peace in a tense situation so that we could have a a less heated discussion we also see this sort of thing play out many times in the gospel ministry of the apostle paul how the risen christ defended him and diffused many dangerous developments i think specifically of how he providentially stopped those who tried to set a deadly trap for him in acts 21 to 23. but you know by far the greatest example of Jesus' continued divine authority over people that we see in the Bible was how he earlier transformed Paul from being the the chief persecutor of the church to the chief preacher of the gospel. And how did he do that? Knocking him over with his divine authority and majesty, with the power of his voice, as we see in Acts 9, much like he did with these soldiers in the story. A story which isn't over yet. There's still two more verses where we finally see that Jesus also had authority over the purpose of his betrayal and arrest. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The disciples were now free to go, but impulsive Peter had a different plan in mind. He'd have nothing to do with it. In a violent act of desperation and devotion to Jesus, what does he do? He pulls out a sword, most likely a small dagger concealed under his cloak, and he he chops off the ear of one of the high priest's servants, whom John identifies by name as Melchus. Now, it's interesting, only John, amongst the gospel writers, records the names of Peter and Malchus, confirming, again, that he was an eyewitness. But he especially takes note here of Peter's self-will. Jesus just ensured his safe passage, but Peter made a last-minute plan of his own, probably trying to prove that he would die for Jesus just as he had said earlier in chapter 13, 37, which Jesus questioned. There we read, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Peter probably wanted to prove, no, that's not going to happen. And so I'm going to defend my Lord, no matter what, even though he 
has just allowed us to be released. You know, how often we act like Peter. Jesus directs us this way, and we go our own will, our own way. We see in scriptures this is clearly God's will for us, but no, I'm going to go do work according to my own will. How different Jesus is, who always followed and authoritatively fulfilled God's will who didn't lose self-control for even a moment when facing betrayal and arrest that he knew would shortly lead to a scandalous trial and brutal death. This was God's will for him, to be betrayed, to be arrested, and to die. This was the purpose of his coming, the purpose of, first of all, his arrest. And so he willingly and authoritatively embraces it. Not by wielding a sword to save his own life, but as John concludes in verse 11 with with the words of Jesus, by drinking the cup that the Father gave him to save the world from sin and death. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In the Old Testament, drinking a cup was often used as an image for judgment and death that God would pour out on those who sinfully rebelled against him and his law. So, for example, Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Now, this is also used, this image, elsewhere in the New Testament, specifically in Revelation 14.10, for the righteous wrath of God that he will pour out on whoever worships uh, the beast in the final days. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Well, that church is the cup that God the Father gave God the Son to drink. Jesus was about to take into himself all of God's wrath, the full measure of his righteous anger for all of the sin that has ever been committed in this world and for all sinners who have ever committed it. Imagine a cup that somehow God supernaturally filled with all of his righteous wrath towards all of the sin and evil and wickedness ever committed. Every evil thought, every evil deed, every evil word, every evil attitude. And then instead of each of us drinking our portion of this devastating, deadly concoction, Jesus drank the entire cup for us. He he downed the whole thing. Where? At the cross. That's what he was about to do. And it was the purpose, as he says here, of his arrest. Jesus needed to be arrested so he could be tried and crucified, not for his own sin, because he had none, but for the sin of the world, which he had 
absolute authority over. We're going to see this as the story plays out. His authority as he drinks that cup of wrath willingly, according to the Father's will, until he could say, It is finished. In John 19 30, he is the propitiation for our sins, the, the, the wrath bearer. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What a Savior we serve, who has the authority to lay down his life and then take it up. And therefore has the authority to give eternal life to whoever believes in him, just as he has said, just as he has offered, just as he has declared, just as he has preached over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. And so with that authority in mind and what's to come in the story ahead when Jesus drinks that cup for you, for me, do you believe it? Are are you trusting now in Jesus and his death for you and how he drank that cup of wrath for you? Have you received that gift of life that he purchased at the greatest cost through his death? Jesus said in John 6, 40, this is the will of the Father that whoever believes in me should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the purpose of his arrest, but really it's the purpose of his entire life, the entire gospel of John. I trust that we will meditate on these things and how we can respond to it. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for us. And specifically how we see here in your betrayal and arrest, your absolute authority over everything, and particularly over your own life and your own death, through which you have drank the cup of wrath deserved for us so that we can have life in you and be saved from death and judgment. So Lord, I pray now that each of us would understand this incredible truth and would believe it and thereby receive the life that you want to offer us, receive the life that is the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.